you know what's coming right now. This podcast is brought to you by, yep, audible.com, the number one source for audiobooks online. I just bought myself my first Kindle. I needed something lighter and something easier on my eyes than the iPad. So I'm trying out a Kindle for the first time. And I just finished a really interesting book that you guys should check out. It is available in ebook format and in audible format. And that is Audience of One by Srinivas Rao. He is the host of a podcast called The Unmistakable Creative, which is a great podcast if you want to check out a podcast that kind of uh, deals with similar topics that we deal with here. The book itself is about kind of, uh, it's a really great condensation, no, not condensation, condensement of a lot of ideas that you see floating around on places like Medium and throughout the internet and, and other little books here and there about how to be more creative, how to be more effective, how to have your life more organized. But he puts it together in a really nice way, and he actually goes back to the original sources. So instead of quoting just another guy that quoted another guy that quoted another guy, he pulls quotes back from the original books, or in some cases from artists like David Bowie. So check that book out, and I am still reading High Magic by Damien Eccles. So if you would like to help support Holy Fool and get a free trial, go to audibletrial.com forward slash Holy Fool. And I believe right now they're having a special where the first three months are $7, which is basically half off. So now is a really great time to do it. Get a free book, get a free month, and then three months for half off. That's audibletrial.com forward slash holy fool. Maybe you want to support more in a different way. Well, I've got a place for you to do that as well. It's called Patreon. You've probably heard of it. So if you head over to patreon.com forward slash holy fool productions, you can become a patron. And in reality, for less than what people spend in one morning on a pumpkin spice latte at Starbucks, you can support the future of holy fool. Okay, before I forget, I need to remind you guys that this is the last episode before the holiday break. I'm taking two weeks off because I want to enjoy the holidays. So, I will be back after this episode on January 3rd. So, don't forget that. Don't think I disappeared. Don't think I gave up. Also, a little update on the Discord server. Some of the former guests are starting to filter in, and there's a little bit of conversation going on there. It's really fun watching this thing just slowly build. We're used to seeing things. You're going to hear this in today's episode. We're used to thinking that things are going to build really fast and just be explosive. In reality, things take time, and it's really fun when you accept that and you just sit back and you watch things grow. What you're also going to notice in today's episode is that I mentioned that it was recorded in August, and you're going to hear me say, that I'm going to try to get Aaron on the show. Well, if you listened last week, you know Aaron was already on the show. Yes, I have to admit, these episodes are published out of order. It's just the matter of which order I get the back-end stuff done determines when I publish these. So that's when they come out, that's when they come out. But what's really amazing about listening to something that was recorded back in August right now is... Not only I come at it with fresh ears so I can hear it in a different way and really enjoy the conversation, maybe closer to the way that you're able to, as opposed to being critical of how I sound or something like that, 
but it also reminds me of things that I was thinking about then and puts them back in my mind. And that idea of time is one of those things. And having this Kindle and all of the things that I've been doing, if you listen to my other podcast, Random Badassery, which I want to just shout out right now and make sure you go check that show out. That's me and Lamb um, talking every week for about sometimes two hours about everything. But anyways, one of the things that we talked about on there is the idea of going back to using paper and using apps less and, and trying to just be present and, and physical and kind of get lost in things instead of continually be, being reminded to do things. So that comes up in this conversation. It really, it's funny that it comes up now when that's been on my mind recently too. But this reminded me of different aspects of that. And one of the most difficult things about doing these introductions, especially on older episodes like this, you listen every time I used to do this, when I would listen to other podcasts, I'd hear the guests, uh, the host say, oh, this is a really great conversation. I really loved this conversation. They'd say things like that over and over again. And I'd think, be original. But I understand now why. Because that's really what you're feeling when you're introducing these things is you're going, this is a great conversation. Was the one last week not? No, the last one last week was great too. And the one before that was great. They're all great. That's why I publish them. But that's that's kind of the fun thing of figuring out what to say here. Because Ben and I, you'll hear us talk about this a little bit. We've been around each other. He's one of these other people that I've been around for a long time, but I haven't really got to know really well. And I just, I when I was listening to it right now to edit, I thought, wow, it's pretty amazing the, the chemistry that we had in this episode and how much... Um, we enjoyed the conversation and how natural the conversation felt. So I hope you guys feel some of that, and I hope you go check out some of Ben's work. And uh, before I ramble any further and stumble my way through any more words, let's get to the conversation with Mr. Ben Henderson. You know, what's what's interesting to me is in doing some of these interviews, I've been talking to, number one, people that I know, you know, mm-hmm. like, like Mike, um, like Ryan, and people like you who I've known, but I don't think we've ever actually sat down to have a full conversation. And in... No, not very extensively, no. Yeah, it's, so in doing this, it's actually, it's kind of cool because it's giving me an opportunity to do things I haven't been able to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've we've known each other for a pretty long time. Um, yeah, I'd say so. I, I tried to actually figure out how, how long and I'm, I mean, it's gotta be somewhere around maybe, maybe 10 years even. Yeah. That, that feels about right. I'd say 10 years. Gaslighter days and stuff like that. Yeah. I, I can't pinpoint an exact moment where we met, but I just, um, felt like I'd probably seen you on the periphery of like a lot of like live music shows and stuff like that and, and, and other places I was frequenting. So yeah, for people listening, by the way, I mentioned the gas letter, the gas letter used to be this, um, it was an old movie theater. Correct me if I, if I describe this wrong, it was an old movie theater that had been converted to play local band shows essentially in Campbell. I think, I think it was like a vaudeville theater. Yeah, there you go. In fact, it still operated as like a vaudeville style theater for maybe maybe the life of of the Gaslighter, uh, but at least for the majority of the time I was playing there, they did. 
it was kind of it was kind of a cool little magic spot for a little while where um i know i feel like a lot of the bands and the people that were in the bands that played at that place i mean they we for the most people or the people who were hanging out too as well there was a lot of people who weren't in bands but what is quote the san jose scene there's so much not just music scene but you know there's a huge group of people that have gone on to do things that were in that group going to that place at that time yeah there 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 was or at least i mean i i, I perceive it to be so but that's like i don't know if that's just from you know from being around those people a lot or if it you know if there was kind of some sort of genesis of something in that time and space. Yeah. I'm trying to think in my head and like <laughs> how many people that are actually going to be on this season of the podcast that were around in those days. And it's, it's actually probably close to half. Yeah. Which like you said, it, you know, it might just be our myopic view of our own worlds, but it seems like a lot of, uh, a lot of people. Yeah. I definitely forged a lot of like, friendships and met a lot of like future colleagues and stuff when playing at in the era where i was playing at both the gaslighters the uh the gilroy one and the campbell one you and drew are pretty tight did you did you guys know each other before the gaslighter days or is that when you guys met uh i actually didn't meet drew until i don't know i think we were definitely still playing around the gaslighter i met drew um, and the rest of the dredge guys when I was on a family vacation in Vancouver, BC. No kidding. And I was, you know, I, a very, very, very big fan of dredge and they, they're like, they're like a, a pivotal part of my, of my, I don't know, everything, everything I do creative. I feel like they, uh, they're the ones who shook me first, uh, at, like out of high school when I didn't think like a local band could be cool, they would, they like, I saw them and I was like, Holy crap. That's, that just blew my mind. Um, but yeah, I, so it was a big deal. My mom pointed out that they were on a, a poster when we were walking down the street and my mom was like, Oh, Dredge is playing here tonight. And I was like, no, they're not. <laughs> Wait, do you, I should just tell you this story. It's like a story. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, and I was like, mom, you don't know anything about, rock and roll and dredge and stuff and she was like no that poster back there on the wall it said dredge and hoobastank and um i was like no way so i walked back and then i looked at the poster i was like dang they did play here but there's no way it's tonight and then sure enough it was tonight and i was in vancouver and i was a big dredge fan i knew this would score me like mad points coming home to tell my friends i saw dredge in canada and um yeah, I went and I was like, I got to get tickets. So I, this is when like internet cafes were kind of like a, still a thing like a, <laughs> out there before everyone was always on the internet. Um, and I popped into like this thing where, you know, pay per minute on a computer. It didn't work. So I was like, oh, I got to find a Kinko's. And then I find a Kinko's like a few blocks away in Vancouver. And I pop in there and I try to buy tickets on one of their computers and I find out that the show is sold out. But as I go to pay for my uh, internet time at Kinko's, uh, Gavin, the lead singer of Dredge, was paying for his internet time at the counter at the same time as me. <laughs> and he was on the phone talking to someone while I was right next to him. He's like, yeah, just let me know if anybody needs tickets to get in tonight. Just let them know. I'll put them on the list. And um, 
my excitement about this whole serendipitous kind of situation, uh, I just kind of interrupted his conversation. It was like, hey, me, actually, I need tickets to tonight's <laughs> show. Like, isn't that kind of crazy? <laughs> and he's like, oh, shoot. I must, I mean, maybe somewhere between like 22 or 23 or something like that. I'm guessing. And um, yeah, I was just kind of waving at him. And he's just like, huh? Like, and he was really, I mean, he was super nice. And I was like, hey, you don't know me, but I actually like practice across the hallway from you guys. And, you know, I'm a big fan. I come from the same area. And I'm, I just found out you're playing. I, I just got to get in. And he's just like, cool, I'll put, you, uh, I'll put you on the list then. And I was like, cool, man, this is awesome. And he's like, that's weird. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> but it's awesome, you know? And then uh, he walked outside and I see him meet outside. He met with Mark outside and I could see him like through the window, like tell Mark this story really quick. Then Mark like looked in the glass at me, like, who's this guy? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just sitting there just like, you know, pee in my pants. Like, oh man, <laughs> I just met fucking dredge dude <laughs> and uh fucking stoked and then i go and uh this guy he was like um i get in line for will call to pick up tickets and there's this guy behind me and i can't do like a very good canadian accent but this guy had a really strong canadian accent and uh there was this line was all these like young kind of teenage girls and teenagers there to see hoobastank because they were the headliner and uh, this guy's like, man, who's this? Who's this Hoobastank band? I'm here to see Dredge, man. I drove three hours from Regina to see Dredge <laughs> to hear them play Lighter Motif. And he's just kind of like pronouncing all of their song names and album names like a different way than everyone I knew like pronounced them. <laughs> so I was like, this is crazy, man. This is some like <laughs> some stuff. And I get to the ticket. And I say who I am, show my ID, and they give me two backstage passes. And uh, I was like, oh, man. And I turn around to my new Canadian friend. I'm like, dude, you want to just go backstage? <laughs> and he's like, no way, man. <laughs> like a lot of A's. You know, he was like, this guy was like super Canadian. And, um, and he was like, dude, uh, I want to... Let's go. I, I rented like a room for the night. I want to show you all my guitar stuff. And uh, I was like, yeah, that, I, I guess that sounds cool. But I was actually more excited to go into the show, even though we were early. But yeah, then I just, oh, yeah. Then we go in the venue and I start flashing my backstage pass around. I'm like, I'm going to go thank my new friends, Dredge, for this sweet backstage pass and introduce them to my new Canadian friend. And uh I, I walk into this dressing room and I look around and it's all the guys from Hoobastank in this dressing room. And I was like, Oh shit. <laughs> it's all the guys from Hoobastank in a very tiny little backstage room. And I see another door on the end of their room. And I was like, Oh, dredge must be through that next door. <laughs> so I, I walk through their dressing room and I open up the door and it's just their bathroom. <laughs> So I'm feeling pretty embarrassed. I think I was also pretty stoned. I think the Canadian dude got me pretty stoned. And I was like, 
walked into the Hoobastank's bathroom and they didn't even, they didn't even bat an eye. They didn't care at all. They just thought I was some person coming through. I don't know, fill the water or something. And, uh, I walked out of there. I was like, okay, Dredge is not in there. Then I found there's like another, like the opening bands backstage was on the, the other side. And yeah, we went and hung out and I talked to them. I met them and they're like, cool. And they had like, loosely heard of my band Delta Activity at the time and I, that made me feel really cool and and then from then on out like we just uh you know I I was actually in Seattle a couple nights later uh on the same family trip and I saw Dredge again there and we got to like kind of party and hang out I was just it was really cool it was the best way <laughs> and uh and then when we got back you know Drew would come out to like art shows and um He'd come see Delta Activity and all the guys would kind of be pretty supportive when we were playing around the Bay Area. And, you know, some years later asked us to like do a few tour dates with them and stuff. So for me, that that was like a pivotal moment for me, those, you know, those, those years, just because it, it meant so much to me to play with um, these, these guys who had influenced me to even pursue music you know as hard as i was in the first place um so that was a big deal there's this weird i feel like as as we we grow as creators and you know there's this weird thing where there's people that seem like uh especially as younger men like uh in our 20s that seem like there are levels and levels above us and then all of a sudden we're standing next to them you know like oh this is my friend yeah you know, like for me, like I remember getting uh, somebody handing me Les Motif, their album, mm-hmm. at uh, some at my friend Starbucks that he was working at. Never heard of yeah. them or anything. And then I was obsessed with that album. And, you know, now like Drew and I are friends. I send him text messages. He comes on the show. He's, you guys, you actually, something I should mention real quick before we go any further. So anybody that's listening to the show knows that Drew designed the logo. But what they don't know is that you helped him. Oh yeah, the wolf. You helped him to digitize the wolf that he that he did, does the paintings. Yeah, that's kind of like a little fun time that me and Drew have, like every now and again, where he like draw out, draw out like all the the main ideas and all the pieces, and I'll I'll go in and kind of vectorize them and like try on different colors and layouts with you know all the elements he's created. So we've done that a number of times over the last few years. It's it's a good time. It's got to be kind of a trip to see, you know, like I saw, maybe if I can find the, I have the photos in a file somewhere, all of the original drawings that he did, because, you know, you, you saw that he did like maybe six or seven different little men for this. Yeah. And it's got to be. A tr- I, I saw a few of them. Yeah. We, I think we, we even tried a couple of them or something. Yeah. There was the wolf. There was a triangle head. I think a bird head. Uh, I think yeah. a bear. Um Yeah. But to take those, you know, because he, he actually did them with, I think it was gouache on paper. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what is that? Are you trying to replicate it exactly when you're digitizing it? Or are you actually going in there and tweaking it yourself and adding your own flair to things? Uh, it depends. And usually, like, in those scenarios, I'll, I usually let Drew kind of, like, take the lead and kind of govern, like, how, how faithful or or to the original drawing or how far do we want to like, you know, change this or explore different ideas. Um, 
and usually in those situations there it when we're when we're doing those and he has to create like a vector or something for you know t-shirts or digital graphics or something uh it's usually kind of like a a more like commercial uh project or you know it's like something for some kind of like marketing purposes so usually like we'll explore like a number of different ideas and kind of hand them over i think that's what we did with you guys as well as we kind of uh you know, sent sent off a PDF with like a few different color schemes and layouts. Like here's one with the guy bigger, here's one with the smaller, here's one with the moon with stars or you know, different things. Yeah, you know, going back to the backstage thing, I want to touch on that again for a second. Yeah. I think that um you and I have been backstage in enough shows that uh we know what backstage is really like. But I think yeah most people out there think backstage is something completely different. Like it's some magical wonderland back there. <laughs> yeah, I I think so. I think I thought that too. Well, I'm, I'm sure when you went backstage at that dread show, you were expecting something like that, right? Um, I mean, the backstage that they had at that particular venue was definitely more glorious than any backstages that I'd had at that point in my performance life. So to me, I was like, damn, this is where it all goes down, huh? <laughs> yeah, you know? But now thinking back as I've played, you know, more and more venues and toured a little more, like, I just I just generally don't even like to be... <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've been in venues where it's like, dang, like the backstage is like a really posh, you know, kind of scene or something like that. Um, yeah, but I think that I just I don't I don't even like touring all that much <laughs> in general. So <laughs> even a posh place away from like home or like you know my community is not the funnest place for me. And for everybody that's like listening, I'm gonna I'm gonna give my experience of what the back room or what the backstage is generally like. And you've been yeah. backstage more, so I want to hear your perspective if it's different. Generally, backstage is a bunch of people sitting around on a couch. <laughs> if there's a couch, if you're lucky yeah. enough, there might be something to drink. There might be some snacks. And it's basically like hanging out in somebody's living room. There's not really generally anything exciting going on in the backstages uh, that I've been back into. Most people are just trying to relax before they go on and then maybe relax afterwards. Yeah. And change their strings and like hang their clothes that they just washed in the sink and like, you know, uh, put together merchandise, um, try as they might to take a nap or something. You know, it's just like, uh, it's not your hotel room and it's not home. It's this, it's an in-between place. And it's, it's most likely for them, a lot of the, the bigger acts, it's like, oh, I'm not on the bus. So I'm really stoked to have leg room right now or something. Yeah, I, I don't know. I've always been like, I've always thought, you know, the the bigger, better places I play in music, I'll eventually get to the place where <laughs> being backstage or, or at certain venues is going to be like a comfortable, cool thing, you know. But um, no, it's just kind of the trench between you and the stage, I think. Yeah. I think the the posh the posh dreams are like maybe one day there will be more to the writer than stale chips and some soda. Yeah, and maybe it's all just relative. Like I, you know, we we know there's these bands out there where like every single member of the band like 
has their own touring bus that they bring their whole family on individually. And uh, I sit there and think of that and like, man, that, that's how I want to tour. That'd be amazing. But um, I have to imagine that at that scale, they pro- that's probably not that fun for them either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're just like, this sucks. <laughs> We're still just in a bus. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Well, there's, um, did you ever hear the story about the, you know, the notorious Van Halen uh, Eminem story? No. So I'm, I'm probably going to get the color wrong, but um, there was a story going around that Van Halen. So for people who don't know, a writer is kind of like, Ben, how would you, how would you describe what a writer is? Um, on the, on the small scale, a writer is just, you know, you have your tech writer and then I don't know what like the personal writer would be called. It's just an artist writer, I guess. Um, but I would, I was on the hook to at least send to the venue ahead of time. Like, this is what we need sound wise from the stage. Um, and then when you are a little more of a commodity, you can start being like, and we need all these sandwiches backstage and we need, you know, five liters of Coke and, a few handles of Jack Daniels or, you know, all the way up to people saying, you know, we need refrigeration for our catering crew and all sorts of stuff, you know? (laughs) So basically what Van Halen did with the writer is they would say, you know, they, they'd list out all these, um, this is when they were the biggest, pretty much the biggest band in the world. So first of all, I should clarify that, but they would have this inordinate amount of stuff. And one of the things on there, was they wanted M&Ms, but they didn't want any brown M&Ms. So they wanted somebody to go in and take out all the brown M&Ms from the bowl. Mm-hmm. And people used to tell this story as like, oh, this is how um, how extravagant uh, Van Halen was and, and right. how how prima donna they were. But what came out over time was, is this, there was this, actually, this was a, a really smart trick of the band. So uh, back in in the days of Van Halen, I guess, from the stories I've heard, you didn't take as much on the road as bands take now. You know, a lot of times they will take um, their lighting rigs with them. And, you know, if, they, if they've got smoke and all of this other fancy stuff, you know, like Van Halen level bands, they take right. all that stuff on the road. But back then, venues had to provide those things 100%. The bands would just bring their equipment and that was it. And right. Because they had such an elaborate stage show, a lot could go wrong. Yeah. Like a, a lot of things could be dangerous. You know, if they had, they had pyrotechnics, first of all. So, you know, the, you could have a Metallica incident where, you know, you get burned or something like that. Um, so what the Eminem thing actually was, was a way for them to test the venue because they figured mm-hmm. if they actually took the care to remove the brown M&Ms, then everything else was probably safe. Yeah. I just, I love that story. I think it's brilliant. I've I've heard this story. I don't I don't know if it's a it's a real story or if it's a tall tale. <laughs> um but yeah, I hear it. I um I don't know. I guess I'm just glad I'm not part of that situation on either side of that rider. <laughs> I guess it'd be cool to be Van Halen though. <laughs> Do you now now that you're talking about you don't like touring very much, um and we mentioned briefly um Delta activity. Mm-hmm. And now most of the music, correct me if I'm wrong, though, most of the music you do, you're just doing as yourself, right? Just solo? Um, yeah, for the most part these days. So 
compare, you know, the the 20-year-old, 23-year-old Ben who was excited to see Dredge to the Ben now mm-hmm. in in this way. The how much of the mythology, you know, like the story we just told, how much of the mythology of music do you get wrapped up into? And how much of it is just about making music now? Um, what do you mean the the mythology? You know, like these stories of, you know, or these ideas that we have of these bands, you know, we mythologize, like you said, I don't know if that story is true or not, but there's right. so many of those stories that we, we spin around and, you know, people believe that maybe the things never happen, you know, like Ozzy with biting the head off the bat and all sure. that stuff. Do you get wrapped up in that stuff or did you when you were younger? Uh, yeah, probably to, yeah, to an extent, like I, I grew up like being a huge fan of like, um, you know, Metallica and a lot of like heavy metal uh, of that era. And, uh, I was definitely like really, you know, I guess even when I was younger and I was like really huge on MC Hammer, I would rent the videos at, at, uh, the local video store, non-chain um and uh you know watch i'd rent like i remember renting these like behind the scenes videos of like how he made the album and how he made the music video and extended versions of the video and things like that so i guess at that point i was you know really really into anything pertaining to the band that me and generally me and my friends were really into i'd probably eat up all that info through through about that era, maybe my early twenties. I don't don't care about it as much anymore. I think that that formative stage, and, and this probably applies outside of just music as well. But I think that stuff is really important. Um, I don't know. It's it, there's something about it. I think it, ins- even though you know a lot of the stories that we hear, they're probably not true. Um, there's something inspiring about them. There's something that I think I, I see a lot of people, at least from our our generation and before. And it may be something that we've lost because, you know, like with social media and the internet, we have this number one, we have access right to a lot of these artists, you know, like, Mm -hmm. um, like Dave Navarro. If I want to tell him, fuck off, I can just go on Twitter and say that I have no no reason to do that. I just picked him at random, but yeah, but I can do that. I have access to that now. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that because of that, we also have all this, you know, like there's a, a lot of stand-up comedians have talked about this too, is you used to be able to go out to a club and, as, a, as a famous comedian and try out new material and just totally bomb to work out your material. But now yeah. it's on YouTube that night. And right. so we lose, I think, a lot of that mythos because everything is so exposed. Yeah. Does that bum you out at all? Um... No, not really. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you lose it all because um, with social media and, and YouTube and whatnot, like it's kind of, you know, you know, there's, there's, there's obviously pros and cons, I guess. And there's, uh, you, you can also be broadcasting yourself like 24 hours a day to however many thousands or millions of followers you have. So it's like, yeah, you are very exposed in in that but you're also like you have like this everyone kind of has their own access cable station you know to to make it relative to <laughs> to the days where you're talking about where there was more lore around 
what was happening in the rock backstage or what happened at that fateful night in Seattle or something like that. Like maybe we do see all that. I certainly, I don't peruse it unless I'm like really a hard fan of something and I don't know what I am (laughs) that hard of a fan at this point. Um, But also with, with, with the social media and stuff, like I'm not going to watch like, you know, every, every single, uh, for instance, a Pearl Jam fan video that hits the web. But if I go on, you know, Facebook or something and everyone's posting this thing where it's like, watch this heartfelt tribute that Eddie Vedder did for this fan in Chicago or something, I might be like, oh, well, I better check this one out. You know, (laughs) like this this is a good one right here. So it's kind of like... um. I don't know if, you know, and in then it works both ways too. Like they, they get that, like, you know, they get to rule the internet for one day and probably their album sales peak. If maybe not, maybe no one buys albums, but um, I don't know, you know, like it also, if they do something bad or say something off color or racist or slightly suggestive of anything bad in the universe, it's also going to get spun the other way. So I don't know. I, I feel like, uh, I don't know if the dust is ever going to settle on our new media world. <laughs> I think it all, it all moves so quickly now that we don't really have time to adjust to it. So to make a long story short, I, I don't know what to feel about all that just yet. <laughs> it's tell you, tell you what I feel about everything ending up on YouTube <laughs> all the time in some years when YouTube was the last thing and we can see it a little more objectively, I guess. It's, it's a weird thing too, because, um, when you, when you look at it, like before, you know, like Van Halen bands like that, whatever, basically all they had to, all they were responsible to do was to create music and and probably do an inordinately difficult amount of interviews. And that was it. Yeah. But now you kind of have to be your own publicist. Yeah. Def- well, you, you know, or you don't really have one. I mean, there's people who definitely like, I guess, hire someone to kind of manage all their social media. I'm sure that's, that's probably big business. In fact, I think I've watched shows on the business of doing that. But yeah, it, it is true. Like everyone, you know, everyone is like their own little reality show, whether they, whether they want to be or not, you know? And if you don't, if you don't participate in it, then you are, you know, you're not on your channels turned off. You know, people don't even have the chance to become fans. (laughs) Yeah. That brings up a really good point because it does seem like there's like, there's obviously in everything, there seems to be a need for balance in all things in life. You know, there's the balance between sharing too much and, you know, like for example, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, but Casey Neistat, the YouTuber, uh, he, he did, I think, about two two years, over two years of videos every day of his life. Um, wow. And then he kind of slowed down because I think it started, his daughter started getting older. She was like a baby. And weird things started happening where he'd get into a taxi cab and the taxi cab would ask him about his daughter. And, yeah. And, you know, just these weird things where it's like, okay, I've I've exposed myself too much. But then also yeah. there's the other side, like you just said, where, well, if you don't do it, then it's all, you know, like you're the tree falling in the forest. Yeah. So, you know, to a degree, the, 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 the analog world is, it still obviously exists out there and, and it's where 
I'd like to think most people would like to have their experience, but you know, my own experience tells me that's not very true <laughs> these days. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. How do you find that balance? How do you, how do you figure out um, how much to post and how much not to? I don't, I don't really find that balance to be honest. I've never, I, I probably have the most calculated approach to social media right now than I ever have. And that's not saying much because <laughs> I still just kind of like, am pretty erratic. Like sometimes I just, I think I'm such a riot and uh, I'll post some silly things with my roommates and, you know, some deep thoughts looking off mountains or something like that. And then other times I'll go for months and I'm just like, I don't think I'm that cool at all. And I don't want anyone to look at me. And I'm just kind of like, <laughs> I'll certainly be on social media digesting everyone else's lives, but I don't want to like share anything, you know, whether that means I'm not like happy probably about whatever is going on or, um, or I just like, don't, you know, don't have the time or care. There's also these weird pockets, which I think are completely natural where you're, where you're looking at your life and what you're doing. You're going, there's nothing to share. You know, I, I go through that, especially like right now, the show is, I'm recording these while the show's on hiatus. So, yeah. you know, it's on summer break, we'll call it. And uh, I'm most of my days are spent in my room organizing things for this season. Yeah. Not exactly something to be live streaming. <laughs> no. No, I mean, not necessarily, but, you know, it's it depends on how much how much value you see in marketing yourself or your businesses through, through social media, maybe that, you know, clutch behind the scenes footage is really what's going to pique your audience's interest in the interim. (laughs) That's kind of, you know, I kind of, you reminded me of something there when, when the internet was first, like, I shouldn't say when the internet was first, because it, I don't even know when that was, to be honest. (laughs) It seems like it was trickling into our consciousness at different rates for everyone. But when we were all kind of first starting to get email addresses and stuff like that, Mm -hmm. and and I guess maybe these were vlogs too, but um, I don't think they were called that then, but people used to have those um, webcams. Yeah. And they would just kind of turn them on. And it wasn't like uh, you know, like a vlog or like a YouTube video. Now you have a purpose, and you're editing it, and you're. It was a lot more like these live things that we see on Instagram and Facebook, except less exciting. You now, usually people now they'll turn on the live thing because something's going on. I want you to see this artist that I'm seeing, uh, this musician I'm seeing, or I'm painting right now. Watch me paint, or. Yeah, something like that. But these guys, uh, do you remember this? They used to just turn on the webcam and they just kind of like do stuff around the room. And then every once in a while, somebody would type them something and they'd reply to them. <laughs> yeah, I, re- I remember like that time. That w- I was definitely not fully sucked into the web at that point. But I remember like people were like, oh man, do you ever like go to this one website? And I just like raise an eyebrow like, that sounds horrible. <laughs> you know, like, um, luckily, luckily, in that time frame of the internet, I did have a rock band as my anti-web, and um, I was I was way more interested in going to the studio and and practicing with the dudes than I was um, trying uh, to log on, you know, AOL with the really noisy, you know, dial-up modem in the kitchen. 
at my folks' house. Yeah, remember that I think that that like the stuff I was describing was just a little bit before I was really paying attention to the internet. There was a period of time where we would play around with AOL. AOL was kind of a weird thing for if anybody like I know there's a lot of people listening that maybe are a little too young to really remember AOL, but AOL was like is like a browser and a chat in the same product. It was it's really strange. Mm-hmm. And you weren't ever talking to strangers, but yeah, you were. You were almost always talking to strangers, but I have no idea how you found strangers because it was usually this just one-on-one conversation. It's like text messaging a random person. Text messaging. Yeah. It was very, we used to, it used to be like a group activity. We would get drunk It's college, you know, we get drunk and then just like find girls to talk to on AOL. And that was yeah. about three months. And you, you know, that's about how long those discs, the free, you know, 127 hours on those discs would last. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. It used to be in hours. Yeah. And then you would, uh, when the, when the free stuff ran out, you would, uh, either go get another disc and create another username and find those people mm-hmm. again. Or you would use the disc as a coaster. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of miss that. I think my, I, I, I don't know if I miss that or not. I mean, it was neat that like life wasn't so governed by um, a lot of like social media uh, garbage. Um, it was neat. I like that about that time. The, the internet to me at that point was annoying and I didn't really see the point of it. And I didn't think that it was ever going to like, uh, <laughs> I didn't think it was ever going to take off like it did. <laughs> um, boy, was I wrong. I thought it was just going to be like, oh, cool. We don't have to have like real encyclopedias anymore. We could just like have like encyclopedia online. All right. Well, that'll be useful. Oh, and now with those maps. Nice. The internet is actually kind of helpful, you know? And then now it's like, uh, well. That's a floodgate that's just been blown, <laughs> blown out. I don't, I don't know many things that I do in life where like some app doesn't kind of like, you know, enhance the experience at this point. I think what I miss, that's kind of maybe what I miss about that time. It's not necessarily that I miss um, uh, chatting with random people online. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously I could do that if I really wanted to. I miss the naivety of it. That everything, um, everything that was done on the internet then was like the first time or you know nobody knew what it was it was it was very nebulous mm-hmm. and people were just testing things out and it, it didn't really matter now everything feels so calculated you know like how many i, I could go on to google right now and find out uh, maybe how if i can find maybe 50 articles that'll tell me how to curate the perfect instagram feed you know, make sure that you have the same color scheme. They're all going to tell me the same thing because everything is so, I guess I'll go back to the word calculated again. Yeah. It's, it's been the, it's been explored. So now we're quantitizing yeah. it. And that that takes the fun out of it for me, I think. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I you know, I say that, but I'm, I'm sitting here. I just downloaded this, you know, this audio conferencing app to <laughs> to have this discussion with you i'm like yeah you know the internet sucks dude um but you know god forbid we would have had to meet at some like you know default world location today you know <laughs> do you that idea of naivety versus you know 
maybe being experienced is a good way to say it. How do you feel that in in art and and music? Do you think that knowing your instrument or knowing your tools better obviously it makes you a better artist in some ways, but you also feel like you, you lose something of that uh, beginner mentality. Hmm. That's a good question. Um, that's a very good question. I I think about if if I do understand you correctly, or if I might just say I, that naivety is something that, um, and, and I'll ref, I'll use it with. I mean, I can relate it to both music and the visual art that I do. Um, back in the day when I was a kid, you know, getting my first instruments like art art projects were always around and then i started getting into like music stuff uh around middle school or so and uh i was you know at that point 100 like naive to um music stuff and learning music was hard um trying to emulate other music was hard um I wasn't a very diligent like uh practicer of any of the instruments I was trying to play so I wasn't very proficient right out the gate at any any one music you know instrument or style or anything and yet that was like easily the most like magical time for music and the most like fun and the most like um, sitting, sitting in my room for a whole day, just playing guitar into like a little boombox recorder or something like that and playing it back and just doing the same thing over and over again, like for like a whole day or even a whole weekend was like a serious getaway, you know, <laughs> like it was like a, it was like a legendary kind of like monumental kind of thing. Like, man, all last weekend, I just worked on this like one song that in retrospect, like totally sucked. But, you know, at the time, it, it really dominated my life. And fast forward, like, a bunch of years and a bunch of music projects to, like, some years ago now, like, a few years ago, I found myself, like, touring with music and, uh, you know, trying my best to curate our social media to drive people to the shows and let them know that we have vinyl for sale and let them know that, like, we have t-shirts in every size and they're super cool and they're very soft. And like, we're going to drop a new song at the show tonight and there's a secret collaboration and like just doing this whole thing just to like start to survive off music. And it, it became, you know, I guess it's kind of cliche, but it became really obvious how far I'd gone from just sitting in my boxers, you know, with, a little microphone and a little guitar and just overdubbing and running my voice through guitar effects pedals and stuff like that, you know, like, um, and that it just kind of made me sad. Cause I was like, this is supposed to be like a kind of like a fine art, or at least that's how I felt. I kind of wanted it to be, you know, and it started to feel a lot more like how I'd like, you know, like graphic design or something. It felt like a commercial art at that point. Like I felt like stylistically, even in the writing, when I would once in a while get around to writing new songs in between marketing old songs, um, 
you know, it just felt, it felt kind of robotic and it felt like I was doing it, you know, like I said, in that cliche way for all the wrong reasons. And it was depressing and sad. And that's what kind of like made me not really want to be like touring anymore because I felt like it, the, you know, for at least me, and I, I don't think it's this way for everybody, for, but for me, like the, the experience got, you know, by trying to add so much value <laughs> to or commodification to my, you know, music, it, it started to, it very much devalued the experience for me to the point where I just literally didn't want to show up anymore. I didn't want to do it anymore. So I didn't. And, um, I didn't really touch my guitar for a, a long time. And then getting back to what you say about, um, naivety, 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 however you say that. Um, it was maybe about, a year and a half or two years ago that I, I found like a, a baby grand piano. Uh, someone just left in the Greyhound parking lot next to my art studio. And I went over and played it one day and it played really nicely, even though people were starting to kind of like tag on it and leave their trash around it and stuff like that. And I was like, dang, I bet, it, you know, cause I had a, I had an art studio on the second floor and I was like, I bet I can, just pay someone to move this upstairs and then I'll have a grand piano for a little while in, in my life. And that would be cool. And I was just kind of like a little wild eyed about it. And I got this guy to move it upstairs and I just started playing piano and I've only, I'd not played piano much in my life. I mean, I've, you know, through, through the years, I've always had like an organ and little keyboards and stuff like that. And I took some classes, but I was never, I've never been a good piano player and having that piano in my life. And I just started playing that every day as like a break from my work. Um, I went into it, you know, very open hearted and kind of naive, like I had back in like middle school and high school. And so that kind of magical feeling, I guess, kind of, it kind of came back. I had to kind of throw myself into a weird, you know, or a different musical situation because when I picked up guitar, it still felt like this weird commercial <laughs> or something instrument that I had built it up to be. And it was not fun. It was not romantic or inspiring to me. Um, but when I started playing piano, uh, you know, just doing everything I could to feel like I can play piano, it just, I was just kind of ignited, you know, and it felt really good. I think like, yeah, it's like falling in love again. You know, you're like, dang, like, I really want to go play music today. That's all I want to do right now. And to like have that feeling after not having that feeling for, you know, a couple years or more is definitely a magical feeling. It's definitely like a reaffirming feeling that like, oh, this isn't just like getting older where like nothing means anything to me anymore. <laughs> it's like, there's this new, cool, fresh, inspiring thing in my life. And it's, this instrument that I super do not know how to play. <laughs> and uh, yeah, does that in long, like that's what I could relate to like with the naivety thing, you know, like how do you, how do you harness that? I think you just maybe hurl yourself in the situations that they don't have to be scary, but like um, I think that's how you keep it. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta stoke it like a fire. And, you know, if it goes out, you're going to have to start over, I guess, you know. Speaking of starting over, 
when you walked away, what was that like for you? I mean, like, did it, was it a, a difficult experience for you to walk away from music after investing so much into it? Um, totally. Yeah. It was very sad. It was very depressing for me. And I felt like I failed. Um, but also like I was just looking at the numbers and I was looking at my physical health and my mental health. And I was like seeing, you know, I'd be touring and I was just like not making enough money to pay my bills or keep, keep my own place. And I was also just getting really depressed and it wasn't like the kind of cool depression where you're like kind of depressed and you just like write a bunch of songs about it and you're pumped again. Like it was like a serious depression where I was like, I hate my life. This kind of sucks. But everyone tells me I'm doing the right thing by like following my heart. And, um, which is tricky. Um, and I just, uh, yeah, it was sad. And I just kind of like, but I just kind of made a deal with myself because I was in kind of, I was feeling pretty distraught and I was like, I don't know if I should quit or whatever, but I also just had all this artwork and all these jobs where like I was going broke doing music, even though like the band was as far as social media was concerned, was doing great. Um, but in reality, my email was just filling up with people saying like, Hey, can you come paint this sign? Can you do this design? Can you help us like do all the interior design for this whole restaurant? Like we have a big project. Like I had all these big projects lined up that were ready to pay me like real, like, you know, adult money. And I just kind of made a deal with myself. I said, you know, why don't we just try taking a break from like touring and making albums and stuff for uh, a calendar year from right now. And let's just focus 100% on doing all these art projects and let's just like see how we feel. (laughs) And I think I was probably only like three or four weeks into like getting my first few paychecks and like doing cool art around town and and launching new projects and new restaurants and stuff like that, where I was just like, uh, I'm way happier and I'm like way more inclined to want to sit down and play music in my free time now and, and have music be that kind of like magical, you know, fire that I keep somewhere else (laughs) away from all you commercial vultures, man. Um, But yeah, I just felt, I felt so good. And after that year I'd finished like, you know, of three or four pretty big projects for me that have only parlayed into all the projects I'm working on for the last couple of years and up until now. Um, and now I'm just, just finally starting to like, I've never like gone like more than like, you know, four or five months without playing like at least a little gig here or there at a certain event. Um, and just in the last like few months I've started playing maybe once a month or so. And I'm even going to a little open mic tonight with my buddy, Paul. Um, so it's, it's starting to become a fun, like natural part of my life again. And I feel really positive about that. And I feel like even though at the time when I like had to like kind of put music down, even though it's so kind of sad and depressing, I still feel like looking back, I think I made the right move in order to like keep music an important and special part of my life. Is music a goal for you now, or is it just something that brings you happiness? Very much something that brings me happiness. Uh, I do 
I do kind of like set little goals, um, but I definitely don't pursue them like like it's my job. Um, I, I do have goals where I'm like, man, I really want to put out an EP or something just to like document it and let people who are interested like hear it. Because I know I'm never going to stop playing music like on my own because it's definitely, it's, it's, it's such a part of me now that it's, it's very much like my way of kind of coping and, and enjoying, like I love to sit down and just play guitar now. Um, whereas I didn't for a while. Um, and it's, it's a therapeutic thing and it, and music to me at this point is very much, you know, it's a lot closer to what it was when I was first getting into music where it's like this special thing. It's a treat. It wasn't a task and it wasn't a to-do list, you know? And, uh, I, I really like it like that. Like if it stays like that for the rest of my life, I'm happy. If, if some opportunity comes along where <laughs> touring seems like a good idea again, I'm happy to explore that too, but it's not, I'm not like striving for it. Like I once was. Is it kind of a trip for you that somebody comes up, you know, say, and they said, this is the guy that designed that awesome uh, JFK poster. Oh, by the way, he also does music. You know, that like, that is that a trip that like, that is like a surprise to people now? Like, oh, you do music too? Uh, It is. Yeah, it is kind of a little trip to me because for a long time, that's, majority of like what people knew me for was was the music i did so uh being known for the music i did felt like um like an inescapable thing you know you know i think there was even a point where i was like you know i do more than just music man you know um but actually you know (laughs) for for me i only had to like put down you know put down the instruments for maybe you know a couple years before i started encountering you know, people who would, who would do just that. Like, Oh, did you know this guy's also got a killer voice? Um, in addition to designing our brochure. (laughs) Um, and at that point, like, (laughs) I'm not annoyed. I just, I mean, I kind of hate when people are presented, uh, to me as like some sort of like, uh, Renaissance person for, for me, I always kind of find it kind of annoying when someone's like, well, yeah, see, I'm a fashion designer, but I also am an entrepreneur and I also like, I'm a drift racer and I'm also like, you know, I paint houses. I kind of do it all. Um, I only said paint houses cause I'm watching this guy paint a house across the street, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, that always kind of annoys me, but you know, I, people will present me like, Oh, he does this and this and this. And you know, and I'm like, shut up, man. I'm just here to do this brochure, man. Keep it. <laughs> Let's keep it cool, buddy. <laughs> it's kind of like those people on, on Instagram. It's like location. They're like LA, New York, Miami. Like, <laughs> yeah, we out here. <laughs> in the coffee shop in San Jose every day. Don't say LA, New York, Miami. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I think it goes back to what we were talking about before. It's that, that sense of, you know, we have to portray some sort of, we're we're all curating some sort of image or at least we're being told we should be curating some sort of image. I mean, I I've definitely gone through that in, in the many phases of this podcast of figuring out, you know, 
there was a, a lot of things where I had to uh, learn how to do things and make mistakes and stuff like that. But I always felt like I had to curate some sort of image to go along with them to almost excuse them. Hmm. Now, I, yeah, I mean, yeah. Like now I just want to talk to people and I don't care if there's an image that goes along with it. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I mean, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to think that that's where like the more special things will happen. Not to say that if you, you know, if you have some like wicked marketing, um, you know, idea that has, you know, curating your image is a vital part of it, you know, more power to you. If that's going to get like these wise words of me (laughs) out there, um, then great. You know, um, it's, it's hard to draw a line. I think that's one of the, like the weird things about social media is that like, I've gotten to a point where like, now that I, I work on like commercial art projects for, you know, small businesses and stuff like that. And where it feels like to me, every move you make on social media in one way or another is marketing. I've started, I've gotten like that illness where I see everything is kind of marketing. (laughs) Even when you say like, I'm not even like, you know, really trying to curate an image. I'm just trying to like do this. I see it all kind of as like, Oh, that in itself is an image, you know? Right. <laughs> and, uh, so that, and, and I think social media has definitely like made that a hyper kind of thing. Like, um, whether someone has a business or not is less important because they're always kind of marketing whatever they do, uh, with their social media in one way or another. And they're all marketing kind of different things. Like some people are just like, are you aware of how much I party? <laughs> like, I am a 24-hour party person, jet setting. And occasionally you see me sad at work, but I party all the time. And like, that's kind of a social marketing because you're like, well, if I want to party, I should get with that person. I should be around them. I need to roll with them, you know, because they're in Chicago, LA, and Paris, you know? And you're like, wow, you know, that's, that's amazing you're clearly the place to be for that kind of lifestyle, you know? Right. And uh, they, whether they're selling it or not, it's like, you know, they're, they're right there along the feed of, of other people who are literally selling like, yo, look, I, I make these handcrafted like utensils for your hipster dinner <laughs> wear, you know, and you, they are, and they're, they're 20 bucks and you'll have them in time for Christmas. And you're like, man, that guy's making the coolest forks. Like, I gotta, I gotta hook him up. He's such a cool guy. Look, he's even funny on the side, you know? So that line between like peddling your life or your wares and stuff, you know, it, it's all coming in the same feed now. And it's, I think it's a little harder to discern like what is and what isn't kind of a commercial. So it's like, it all feels kind of like a big commercial. <laughs> I feel like what sucks too is there's people out there that are doing some really cool stuff. Um, you know, whether they're artisans or artists or musicians, but they can't seem to, you know, they're, they're just not people with, we'll say a marketing brain in the sense that they're not right. people that are going to have an awesome Instagram, even though they're making amazing things, they don't know how to present yeah. it that way. Um, yeah. And, I see them getting frustrated because they can't take, you know, they can't get a foothold in social media. Yeah. And then 
it ends up making them stop doing the art that they're actually really good at because they, yeah. because they can't whore it out, you know, and it's, yeah. it, it bums me out. It really does. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think about that all the time. And, uh, but I don't know. It's it, once again, I, I feel like being for me a little bit, and I think that is a bummer. Like I feel that is a bummer and I've definitely known, you know, at at least dozens of artists in many different mediums uh, who can't seem to crack the code of, you know, modern marketing of themselves or their services. And that is a bummer, but it is also like, it, you know, it's, it's our bummer. And to, to be totally bummed about it, I think it's kind of like, well, the world was never going to like keep the same kind of like hurdles to jump as they did in like the twenties and thirties and forties and fifties and sixties, you know, like the record labels have changed and like the way, you know, the companies aren't always going directly to some huge, um, you know, media marketing company for their new, you know, uh, their new campaign. Sometimes they're, they're picking these, influencers with so many thousands of followers for their very authentic view on these new shoes or something, you know? Um, so it's just like, it is the bummer, you know, it's like with, with all this Googling, with our teleconferencing and our social media, we, we also have created some unique, um, hurdles and, and consequences in the way of like sticking your neck out. There's also just like a lot more people, <laughs> so like, right. you know, there's like, it's kind of like, you know, I, I can't imagine every town or city back in the day had as many, you know, they just couldn't have had all these musicians and artists and rappers and whatnot. Not to say that rappers aren't artists, you know, I'm not saying that. But <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, you know, it's, it's, it's our bummer to deal with. And clearly some people, they slay, you know, they, they kill it on social media i follow some people where i'm like i don't even like this person's music or whatever but they are just like they're my they're my favorite channel to watch you know so i don't know yeah it's to be that to be that pop star or something now you know you really do need to be you or you need to hire someone who knows how to run your social media or something but yeah like you're it's it's mighty hard to stay relevant i think in in the modern media landscape without you know, being pretty masterful of how you share your life or frame your artwork or, or your events or whatever you're doing. I feel like also there's this, <clears throat> excuse me. I feel like there's also this problem with speed or with time. You know, I think that a lot of the things that we talk about with social media and stuff like that, they're not really that big of a deal. If you take time out of the equation you know like going back to what i said about artists stopping you know like somebody that person who's making that uh, artisanal um utensils for your your dinner as you said maybe those are like the best forks and the best spoons ever and they're made out of you know handcrafted ivory or something and they're amazing and you know they give up on it because social media they social media brums them out because nobody wants to like their photos. So they think what they're making isn't good. Right. But the real problem is there, I think is, is when 
the time is in the equation. These people are going, I've been posting photos for two months and mm-hmm. I haven't grown my likes. Well, that's sure. It's only two months. <laughs> We're all expecting like this viral moment that's not going to happen. You know, yeah. And I've, I've learned that with this show with, with, and podcasting in general is, you know, like my, my social media is small, but my views are, are good. They're way bigger than my social media. So like my mm-hmm. social media has no bearing on whether people listen to the show or not in, in reality. And mm-hmm. weird things happen too with time, you know, like uh, we're coming up on we're recording this. I don't know when people are actually going to hear this, but we're recording this on August 23rd. And we're coming up on 28th of August, which is actually my birthday. But um, it, and on the 28th of August, it'll be two months since I posted the last episode from season one. So it's mm-hmm. a two, that two-month break. So there's yeah. absolutely no real reason that anybody should be listening to anything from season one other than, you know, a couple of people filtering in here or there when you think sure. in that time logic. Yet looking at my thing yesterday, I have 300 hits that I've had in the last three days from Washington, D.C. and Alexandria, where I know no one. In fact, the only thing that I know that's in Washington, D.C. and at Alexandria is the Department of Defense, which makes me a little bit nervous. But <laughs> That's probably the Russians. <laughs> but, I mean, there's absolutely no excuse. And in reality, what it probably could be is that it took two months for that episode to filter through human beings, through the grapevine, to people in that place, and all of a sudden, they're just discovering it for the first time. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like, I can look at my numbers for the first week of downloads and have a completely different picture of what this show is or, you know, what that means. But when we start to remove time from it and we start to remember that even though we have so many things that are available to us instantly, mm-hmm. that some things still do take time. Yeah. And I, I think like there's no better example than that than, you know, watching like, for example, me as an observer watching you develop as a, as a visual artist, mm-hmm. you know, like there's no way you could have, uh, you could be at the level doing the things you're doing now 10 years ago because you needed that 10 years to get there. Oh yeah, for sure. And I mean, sure. I'm, it absolutely applies to music. It applies to everything in life. And I, I think that if we can start remembering that more, maybe we'd preserve some of our sanity. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I think about that quite a bit. The, the instant gratification of, of all of our social media and all of our apps and stuff like that. Um, Everything, everything technology is geared towards making us take less time and doing anything. Like, you know, we'll sit there and argue like which app is going to like pull up the directions to this place faster or which one will get you on the fastest, absolute fastest. It even takes you the cutty ways to get you there faster than the other app you know as if like that 13 seconds like if if you're tripping off that 13 seconds you know it's like like you might want to re-examine but um and i'm talking to myself um but yeah everything's geared towards taking less time and taking less effort and that's great 
you know, I think that's great. I think that's why we started making robots and everything to begin with. So it's like, uh, you know, mission accomplished, I think in a lot of ways, but I definitely like when I, I've been taking kind of a harder look at a lot of my younger artist friends that, um, that I'm around and I try to help mentor on like their projects and like where they're going with their own, you know, painting or design or how they market that stuff on social media when I talk to them about it. And I definitely noticed this, this, um, you know, you and I talking about how we grew up with like, you know, AOL was this kind of this like thing on the fringe and it wasn't, it wasn't governing our life. And you talk about, you know, people 10 years younger than us, they're like that there was no, there wasn't another life without it. So it's like, they, they're always used to like, there being a faster, easier way and likely one that doesn't cost you anything money wise, time wise, or like thought wise, you can just get it now. You need that movie. If you know the right website, it's for free right now. Like there's, there's no need to find an obscure bookstore to find that one. You know, I can download it right now. So I think that that mentality, I don't, I don't know. Is it creating the next like wave of like kind of instant art? If you like whoever, he who can do it fastest or something kind of wins. I don't, I don't know, but I do know that it, it does seem a little pervasive in the sense. Like when I talk to like the younger artists that, that I'm around, I, I say, I see them get so frustrated when they haven't, you know, they'll get so frustrated that they basically can't like slam dunk on some art project and they've not really even been playing like horse for that long. And I'm like, dang, it's not like you've been trying to slam dunk for <laughs> several months. You, you haven't even left the ground yet. And you're like bummed that you don't like, you don't have a ring <laughs> or something. And it's just like, it's kind of wild. You know what it reminds me of? Do you remember the movie Amelie? Yeah, I didn't watch it that much, but I, I know the movie. There's an old man that's like her neighbor in the film. And he's uh-huh. doing like little oil paintings, uh, kind of like uh, Degas style oil paintings. Mm-hmm. And I don't even remember if it's focused on that much in the movie or if I've just, you know, made it something bigger in my head. But he, he goes up to the paintings and he'll just sit there and he makes one little line. And then he'll look around and he makes a little line and then he'll stop. And it's like he's just inching this painting forward towards completion over a very long period of time. Yeah. And I've, I've, I'm just totally drawn to that idea. Like that's, I just, I think that sometimes finishing something requires a level of digestion that we don't always allow. Like I've, I, I took a photo of myself on uh, the night of the election when, mm-hmm. when Trump was elected. I took mm-hmm. a photo of myself for just to capture how I felt that moment. And I've been painting a self-portrait of that since then. And I haven't finished it. I haven't worked on it for like five months because I haven't felt anything about it. Yeah. And I, I feel like it's really important for us to, to, to do those things, to let things be an experience again. Mm-hmm. Very much. Yeah. It's, uh, that kind of goes back to that, you know, like while we were, while I was talking about music and trying to be naive about something again. Uh, when you remove the, the business and the commodity and, you know, the marketing of whatever art or craft, you know, you're working on, um, 
it really opens up this huge freedom that I think, you know, if you're in the, the, you know, the business end of it for too long, you, you ask yourself, why, like, why would I try and make this record where I only add one note a day or something, <laughs> or something like that, you know, like, why, how would I sell that? You start, you think instantly like, but how am I going to market that? Like who would want to hear that? And it's, it's, it's a very learned thing. I think to think that it's like a stupid idea to endeavor a kind of wild idea, you know, or an unmarketable, at least in, in initially idea. Um, and that was like, that is what I very much, I feel like I had to go through with music to kind of fall in love again was like, I just started writing songs on piano that didn't sound anything like, you know, the kind of folksy strummy stuff I've been doing on guitar for years. And the things that I was writing sounded more like kind of show tunes or like Elton John-esque kind of pop songwriting or something like that. And I was like, man, like this is not, like I think this is pretty cool. Like I am really impressed with myself that like I've strung these chords and rhythms and melodies together in such a way that I feel it's like even holding a candle to these weird things that it, like, you know, not Elton John's not weird. He's great. But like it was, I'm writing stuff that's a far cry than whatever is ever, what I was ever trying to sell to the public. And so much so that I feel like I can't really sell this. This just like is what it is. And if you like it, you like it, but it's not, I don't feel like it's hip, you know? And, and that's like a refreshing and kind of freeing feeling to me is that like, I don't feel like I'm creating something that's like, yeah, that's very 2018. Like when I listen to what I'm making, no, it's not. <laughs> it's, it's very much some other years and and I hope maybe people will like it or something, but I also like the not caring if anybody likes it is like a, it's a beautiful place to be with, with any art or craft, you know? Um, and that's like a, for me, it's a very intentional thing that I like kind of live there with music now because with my like design and, and sign painting and stuff like that, I, that is a very commodified thing for me. That is how I make my living. That's how I pay my rent and keep the water on and stuff like that. So I don't have the freedom necessarily with my quote unquote, or at least that's my dichotomy of my art world is that one is my like thing that I can sell. I can bake those things up, you know, and uh, the music's it's more special now to me. It's like, it's a fun, weird kind of fantasy place you know in sound as well <laughs> so it's kind of interesting to think you know like the old adage don't quit your day job yeah it's like well maybe it's don't quit your day job because your art will suffer yeah i've i've definitely i feel like personally and it's not it's definitely not true for everyone but i feel like my art has always been in my opinion the the most potent and like uh substantial art that i've ever made has been when i had a day job um when i was working at a coffee shop you know during the whole period of delta activity i felt like i was granted i was younger um but i i never i don't think i've ever felt so like explosively like creative and inspired um than that time frame when i was serving coffee you know all afternoon into the evening and then I just race to the studio to like 
just get my hands on instruments and play and sing and jam and do whatever. And it, it's just that that was like a very whimsical and magical time. And I often, I kind of had to consider that, you know, when I was kind of putting music down, I definitely thought about like, maybe if I just kind of day job my, you know, my art stuff just to like <laughs> look out for the bottom line and water my roots a little bit, maybe my, my fun things will grow and they very much have. So I, I don't know if that works for everyone, but it's definitely worked for me. Yeah. There's something about that stability that allows you to take those, you know, you're not so concerned with this has to be marketable. You can make those, you know, like you said, the songs that, you know, I can't sell this either. You like it or you don't, Mm -hmm. you know, that's where you get to, you know, write your uh, vampire puppet opera, like uh, Jason. Exactly. Yeah. I love that movie actually. (laughs) I love that idea too, because it's so crazy, but it's, that's what makes that movie for me because of that. You're like, yeah, it's crazy. And he did it and it's cool. And he was, you know, he was doing what, what he really wanted to do, even though, you know, it wasn't really a a smash Broadway hit. Right. (laughs) Like he, he was pursuing this particular interest and having a lot of fun with it and doing it like obviously only, and maybe thankfully only he would. (laughs) And also when you were talking earlier about uh, writing a song one note at a time, you know what that reminded me of? I don't know if this is going to take us back to the beginning with musical mythos. Brian May from Queen apparently recorded every guitar part from Queen one string at a time. Mm. So he never played a chord ever. Interesting. He would record them all one note at a time. I think I, I think I've heard that as well. As well as I heard that he built all of his own guitars from scratch. Mm. I've um, heard that one too. They must and I, I've also heard that like Steely Dan would do that same technique with guitars on recording some of their songs too, to get more of like a, you know, instead of a strummed guitar sound, you get a chord. You get a chord sound with, you know, with the attack of kind of a piano where all the notes can hit at once. Right. That's patience. That, that is patience. It's something that I hope that I will be in some space to try one day with a four track on the floor of some room somewhere. Yeah, that meticulousness is kind of in its own way a risk. <laughs> yeah, but yet clearly going to create, you know, a unique thing on the other side. What book do you think I should read next? What book? Man, there's there's only there's one book on my mind um recently. It's not very like wait 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 to to uh, understand artist minds. Just any book that you think that I should read next to become better. To become better? Just as a human in any way. Yeah, dude, I got it for you. Um, like maybe about a year ago, um, I was going to the book sale at the university down the street where they sell like all books, like as many books as you can fit in a bag for like five bucks. Um, and I found this book, like a a self-help book from the nineties, uh, called, the 10 natural laws of successful time and life management. And the subtitle is proven strategies for increased productivity and inner peace. 
and it is written by this genius, <laughs> uh, Hiram W. Smith. Um, and it's just a book I found, and I kind of thumbed through it one day. And me, I always, I, I struggle heavily with like self-discipline and like time management when it comes to like scheduling like work versus like art versus thinking and just just screwing around with my friends and stuff like that and it's something that's always held me back where you know whereas like my my skills and stuff with work have always gotten better and better and I've become a better and better artist you know I think across the board the more I practice but um my my ability to run my life hasn't <laughs> it hasn't in, improved that much i feel like since like middle or high school or something um and i read this book and it kind of you know it's just totally it's an old self-help book written by the guy who created the original day runner day planner um and i read it and then mike mcgee my roommate life mate he also read it and we were both just like astounded at how much we never really learned about like just how to manage time and organization and how to prioritize your values in life such that you can govern your daily tasks in a way that will make you feel like you're doing good in life and you're doing like, you know, he's, he uses the word inner peace. Um, because when you don't have inner peace, he he says that you're not um, you're not following you're not you're not scheduling your life according to the things that you really value. And I haven't read a lot of these like self help books, but this one really shook me to the core as I read it on like an exercise bike that I was also really into at the time. And uh, I think it's a great book. I think it's a really good book for anybody to read, even if just to reaffirm that their habits are actually like pretty sound, you know? So I'd say that. <laughs> I love when a book that I have never even heard of comes up. That's, that's why I love this question so much. Yeah. I don't it's a, it's, it's a fun, I think it's also kind of a fun book because he's a very good writer like yourself. And it's like fun just to like, even when he just has paragraphs and paragraphs of pretty plain speak information, he's like, an elegant writer so it's like nice to read and when he reiterates kind of the same concept like three times like i don't get mad i feel like he's just a good teacher <laughs> so uh it's cool well ben would you like to tell everyone who you are what you do and where they can find you where can they find me who am i what do i do uh i am ben henderson um of the Henderson clan <laughs> and I am an artist and musician based out of San Jose, California. Um, you can see a lot of my art uh, hanging around town in the way of murals and signs and, you know, designs for people and on posters a lot. And sometimes I'd make other forays into like fine art, but not that often. And then, you know, you can hear my music by searching any one of like the music projects I've been a part of through the years, which was Delta Activity and Good Hustle 
and Brother Grand, and just by searching my name, Ben Henderson, not to be confused with the um, UFC fighter who has just destroyed my Google results. <laughs> I had the same thing um, with the football player, so I feel like... <laughs> um, and I, I tend to not like put a whole lot out there on the web as far as like promoting these things outside of my Instagram, sadly and thankfully, I guess. Um, so I, I, my handle there is at oh my god o h m a i g a w d, and uh, you can find me. Oh, I have my little my little art studio is in Local Color, in downtown San Jose on First Street. So I'm in there with like a whole a whole big gang of really talented artists. So that's how you can find me. That's how you can keep up. You know, there's like a, a lot of I stay I stay involved with a lot of things down here. So and local color is um Drew's down there with you and then hopefully I'm 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 hoping to have Aaron on the show as well. Oh really? Have you have you scheduled her in? I emailed her. She's she's busy this week, so hopefully I'll be hearing back from her soon. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Drew's down there. I mean, I'm in there with about 20, 20 other artists who are just like, you know, really amazing, different. Jeremiah you know, Harada. Jeremiah's in there. Uh, a lot of like, a lot of people that I really, I learn a lot from every single person in there has, has like, has just so much like, you know, they're just, they're just very talented and everyone's very different and they come from a lot of different backgrounds. So it's a very, rich rich environment to be in i was i was alone in my art studio for about three or four years before i moved into like this kind of collective studio and it was one of the best things i ever did for sure i've been trying out a new podcast app and they're not paying me to say this but it's called Castbox. it's kind of cool because you can comment and heart episodes so it brings more of a social aspect to it. So you might want to check that one out. Or maybe you still prefer to use Overcast or you like Castro. Or maybe you're just using the Apple Podcast app. It doesn't really matter where you listen to the show. I'm just glad that you listen. And I would really appreciate that whatever app you're using in, if there's a way to review, to comment, or to give a thumbs up or a star to this show, that you take the time to do that so that other people know that this show is something that you enjoy so that maybe they can check it out too.